Blog Talk Radio. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent who dreams for their child and every child who dreams for their future, I say these words to you tonight. I am with you. I will fight for you. And I will win for you. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you, and good night. I love you.
everybody. Happy Monday. Thank you for tuning into the Rory Sauter Show. I'm Rory Sauter, your host. It is great to be with all of you. I have missed you all since last week. I hope you had a fantastic weekend. I hope it was productive. I hope it went accordingly. Uh, I had a fantastic week, weekend myself. I got a lot done. Uh, it was fun. It was, uh, it was great. I can't complain. Uh, like I do every episode, uh, I want to thank all my guests, my co-hosts, my audience and sponsors. You guys are all fantastic. We're listened to in 23 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. And everybody, if you miss any past clips, past episodes, or need 24-7 breaking news coverage, please visit my media site, the next, N-E-X, gen, G-E-N, USA.com. And don't forget, in the coming weeks, we will, well, actually, I will be announcing uh, either today or tomorrow starting uh, the many notable names that will be doing shows on my new network, and I can't wait. We're making this thing 24-7. It's going to be huge. Uh, we're doing a, a really cool merger. There's just there's really a lot to look forward to. Um, and, guys, the shows were so good last week. I went back and listened to them, and I tell you, the, the show just keeps getting better and better, and, uh, you know, it's just um, everything you want in the show. Great dialogue, amazing guests. Uh, great flow. I mean, we always have great flow. That's for damn sure. Uh, let me introduce um, doctor, award-winning speaker, professor, veteran, technology expert, best-selling author, and commissioner of Parks and Recreation for Maricopa County, Dr. Bob Branch. How are you, sir? Well, I'm doing fantastic, Rory. I'm glad you had a good weekend. I got to hang out with a couple uh, great Trump supporters, uh, Congressman Andy Biggs and Congressman Matt Gates. And, uh, well, I'll tell you what, great weekend, and uh, look forward to, you know, I know the the other people on the panel look forward to talking with them, and uh, I know that we got some revisionist history that we got to talk about that Bernie Sanders brought up today uh, about Bernie, his supporting democracy all his life. <laughs> sorry, as you're saying, though, I, 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 he, his voice always gets me, but go ahead, though, sorry. Well, doesn't his voice sound like something off a 70 sitcom? I mean, seriously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like an angry professor yelling at somebody for not doing their work. Exactly. Exactly. Bueller, Ferris Bueller, you know, exactly. But <laughs> I, I'm a professor. I never get angry, though. But look forward no, to talking with everybody you're... tonight and going out on that. Yeah, you're the, be- you're the best, Dr. Branch. You never get angry. Uh, let's also introduce <laughs> to the show uh, conservative talk show host. 2024 presidential candidate, activist, and best-selling author, the great Daryl Kane. How are you, buddy? Oh, oh, you, you are too kind, my friend. You are the great Rory Souter and the great Dr. Branch. I saw those pictures. Very snappy. I saw you on Facebook looking very cool. Uh, hey, Rory, did you get the Freedom Fest stuff figured out? Oh, we're doing it, man. We're going to have so much fun oh, in Vegas man. going to oh, – and anybody, anybody that hasn't sweet. gotten their tickets yet, get your tickets. It's going to be the biggest event yeah. of the year. Sorry, Daryl, what were you saying? And, and use promo code Kane2024 to get 100 bucks off those tickets. Um, and I actually – I get a little kicker for that. I get like 40 or 50 bucks. If you reach out to me, I'll give you my kicker. Or just skip the event altogether and just come hang out with me, Rory, DeKuyper. It's gonna be it's gonna be a blast. We're gonna have a lot of fun. We absolutely are. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, speaking of DeKuyper, um, 
I believe he's on the line. Let me introduce him, the founder of College Republicans United, founder of Republicans United, and currently the leader of Nationalists United, Kevin DeKuyper. How are you, buddy? I'm doing wonderful. I hope uh, you and your listeners are doing absolutely wonderful as well, and it's been a great uh, week in politics. Can't wait to get into it. Me too, man. I'm really excited. Uh, Also want to welcome to the show uh, Desert Storm veteran, uh, activist, uh, popular talk show host, and he, he, Eric Thompson, and currently the owner of the new Megabook, book, which is trying to take over Facebook. How you doing, Eric? We're doing great. Yeah, it's always good to be on with you guys. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we have, um, do we have ISIS escapee, activist, radical Islam expert, radical Islam expert, best-selling author, IQ Al-Razuli. IQ, is that you? I'm with you. Okay, great to have you here, sir. Great to have you here. Um, guys, we got, we got a huge show to get into tonight. I got so much to talk about. Uh, I'm glad you guys are all on the panel tonight. And we'll have our, our first guest, uh, Bob Dotson, who's a, an Emmy Award winner. And uh, also a, he was on the Today Show for many years. And he's also a business mogul and best-selling author. He's done a lot of big stuff. And uh, we can't wait to talk to him. Uh, anybody can look him up. He's all over the Internet. And then we'll also be having, obviously, uh, Michael Hart. Uh, from the Michael Hart Show, uh, coming on later. Okay, guys, let's let's get right into it. I am absolutely blown away. I am jumping up and down. I am ecstatic. I feel more patriotism than ever before. Trump, 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 baby. Mega, mega, mega. This guy is unbelievable. Mexico came to the table. Trump, you know, didn't have to do the tariffs. And like I said, the fact that they were running to Trump when he was threatening to put 5% tariffs on to stop the illegals from coming in, that that, and they ran, it just proves how fragile their economy is. I mean, people, you guys have to understand what's going on here. I'm going to read exactly what the article says about uh, what uh, this entire, you know, thing that he, he established with them, with their government, as of, as of last week. I mean, we are literally looking at def- defunding entirely the cartel. It totally ends catch and release. And what, what, do, what does the mainstream media do all weekend? They downplay it. They ignore it. They're biased. They, they, they find some sort of spin. This guy just took care of a problem that most presidents have been trying their whole lives to figure out. This guy makes it look easy. This guy, and you want, you know what, we're going to get, I, like I said many times on my show, and we'll definitely get more into it, uh, but Trump is something out of the Bible. I mean, this is Messiah-like, what he's doing. This is Messiah-like. This is unbelievable. This guy goes to the extra level. And the extra extent, every single thing he does. And like I said before he got elected, and uh, the reason I was with him from day one is because I knew this guy was a perfectionist. I knew that in order for him to be happy and in order for him to feel like he's fulfilled his duties, he's going to have to do everything 100%. There's no, there is no half-assing with Donald Trump. Never has been. This guy uh, is un. Unbelievable. 
but let me let me get let me get to the, some of this report. I'm just gonna scroll through this. Um, you know, they now obviously have a legal alternative to to the catch and release rules, which currently uh, allow migrants to legally enter the United States if they bring children and claim asylum. So we know that they've been taking advantage. That's been something that's been taken advantage of. I mean, I know there's a lot of great people that come to this country, but there's also a lot of scary people that aren't being vetted. They're not being looked at. Uh, They're using kids as props so they can get in easier. Uh, We've seen this. This is like the easiest trick in the book. Um, You know, the catch and release thing, you know, they can now, now with this, uh, when they give them their court dates, and we know for the longest time how when an illegal would get caught, they would give them a court date, then they release them, and nine out of ten never came back for their court. They don't come back for their courts. That was an actual poll. That was an a- that was an actual poll that um, that came out last week. Nine out of ten, everybody. So now they can be they can be sent back to Mexico until their asylum claims are ready to be heard by a judge. So that way, they always come back to court. We don't have to worry about them not coming back, um, going through some other, some other things. In response, Mexico will authorize the entrance of all those individuals for humanitarian reasons in compliance with its international obligations while they await the, um, the, the justice uh, situation of their asylum claims. Mexico will also offer jobs, health care, and education according to its principles. The United States commits to work to accelerate um, and conclude removal while while proceeding as possible. Both parties agree that in the event measure adopted to not have the expected. Okay. Um, I mean, this is there's a lot in here, and I'm just I'm going through it, and I'm just pointing out the the quick facts. It's it's not a very long article. Um, Mexico also promised to step up police enforcement against the cartels, labor trafficking from Central America into the United States. Um, the promise of extra enforcement is, um, you know, that's, that's big, and that, that's, really, that's really important and it's great to hear. Uh, however, uh, border officials face the practical problems of processing migrants for return to Mexico at a faster rate than the cartels can bust them up to the border. If the border agencies can't keep pace with the cartel, with the cartel uh, transport networks, they may be forced to release some migrants in the United States. The compromise deal allows Mexico to dodge the escalating tariffs, like we talked about. Uh, Trump and his deputies wanted Mexico to declare itself a safe third country because that would give U.S. border officials the permanent legal authority to reject migrants who cross through Mexico. But the Mexican government's agreement to host the migrants before their U.S. court hearings provide similar legal authority to U.S. border agencies. Uh, the deal means that border agencies will not have to release migrants. Like I said, um, the end of catch and release will likely wreck the cartel's labor trafficking business, which depends on migrants getting U.S. jobs to repay their smuggling debts. Few, few poor people in Honduras, El, Sab- El Salvador, or Guatemala will go into debt with the cartels or mortgage their farms and homes to the cartels once they know they will be forced to remain in Mexico prior to their asylum hearings. Uh, the reduction of migration will also help stabilize the Central American countries, which is important, which is needed before foreign investors build farms or factories in those nations. Uh, under current rules, roughly 1 million Central Americans will walk through the border loopholes created and preserved by courts and Congress and into American workplaces, neighborhoods, and schools during the 12 months prior to October. Uh, politically, a good deal for Trump. 
obviously, it's a huge, huge uh, win. And the fact that the media, everything he does uh, is, is down. You know, obviously, we have those honest channels where, but us conservatives, we only get about 8% of honest media. The other 92% is controlled by liberals. And it's, it's so misleading. And, you know, there has to be stuff. It's driving me nuts. It's driving everybody nuts. And there should be rules against what people can report. This is just, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not journalism anymore. It's basically opinion pieces. They're writing how they feel. And we all know journalists usually lean, lean left wing. Um, but this, this whole border situation, you think about the billions would it be uh, this saves taxpayers. You see how this saves people's lives. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of great illegals that come here and come here for a better life, but there's also a lot that uh, kill people and, you know, uh, cause crimes and, you know, deal drugs. And uh, those are the kind of people that we need to be uh, stopping. And, uh, you know, and this is, this is a huge step. This is huge. I mean, everything that it's doing, and, and you're, getting, you're getting, you know, the border – uh, it's way, way more strict. I mean, they're going to have more protocols, all that different stuff. I love it, though. I want to play this clip uh, from Tucker Carlson um, earlier today, and he, and he talks exactly what's going on. Tuck, you know, they totally ignore uh, the border victory, and he's so spot on. Uh, one four. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. The news out of the Dominican Republic getting worse by the day. Americans in danger there. Now, an American baseball legend is in the hospital tonight. Even Fox's own news crew has come under attack. This show is on the ground for an exclusive joint investigation into what's happening there. A live report from the DR just minutes away. But first tonight, you probably didn't read about it over the weekend, but it looks like the president's recent brinkmanship with Mexico actually worked. A week and a half ago, the president threatened to impose tariffs on all goods coming across our southern border until the Mexican government joins us to fight illegal immigration, migration they have been abetting for years. Well, on Friday, they got the message and caved. The Mexican government will now deploy 6,000 troops along its southern border with Guatemala. And going forward, certain asylum seekers will wait in Mexico rather than the U.S. until their cases are resolved. Now, none of that is going to solve our illegal immigration crisis, but it is, at least potentially, a big help. And you'd think every American would be happy about it. But no. Democratic presidential candidates spent the weekend complaining about the deal and taking Mexico's side. Watch. We need a decent relationship with Mexico. They are our allies, as is the case with Canada. We should not be confronting them every other day. Trump's erratic Threats and trade policies are not the way to go. The tariffs in general, um, I thought what happened uh, with Mexico and the way he used that um, on the immigration issue was just um, not a good thing. Yeah, I think the president has completely overblown what he purports to have achieved. By and large, the president achieved nothing except to jeopardize the most important trading relationship that the United States of America has. So in case you're trying to follow the reasoning at home, by asking Mexico to stop encouraging an illegal invasion of our country, we're, quote, jeopardizing our relationship with Mexico, and it's our fault. Okay. 
But the dumbest and most extreme response came, as it always does, from Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Having a border at all, Booker explained, is very much like murdering people during the Holocaust. As much as he wants to make us afraid of, of, of people trying to come here escaping terror, not remembering, like, when we turned away other immigrants trying to escape terror, there was a, a ship that came here during World War II with a bunch of folks trying to escape the Holocaust, and we turned it around where they got killed in the Holocaust. With the shame of that, we think we would learn our lesson about people coming here to seek asylum, escaping terror. So how do you even respond to a statement like that? Maybe it's best to ignore it. But if you take three steps back, what do you conclude from rhetoric like this? Well, you probably assume the Democratic Party loves immigrants. But you'd be wrong. They don't. So the Democratic Party immigrants are just a means to an end. And of course, the end is always the same, power. When immigrants to this country become pro-American and call for following our laws, as many do, by the way, the left turns on them, too. It happens a lot. It's happening right now to a Gwinnett College professor called Fang Zhu. Zhu is a legal immigrant from China. He loves the United States. He strongly opposes illegal immigration here. For that, activists are demanding that he be fired from his job. Professor Zhu is not giving it. In fact, tomorrow night he'll join us on this show. But the Democratic Party doesn't want more immigrants like Fang Zhu. They're very clear about that. They want immigration that is based on family ties, anything but merit. Why? Because for the Democratic Party, the more desperate, the less skilled, the less educated a potential immigrant is, the easier to control, and therefore the better. And that's why in the state of California right now, the government there is planning to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to provide free health care to illegal immigrants. That, of course, won't help the state of California. It won't help millions of hard-pressed middle-class Californians, but that doesn't matter, helping regular Americans stop being the agenda a long time ago. I mean, look at everything, look at everything that, that's going on. I mean, you have the communist state of California now get, wanting to give illegals free health care. They have millions of home, homeless and people, their own citizens in California in poverty, but they want to help other citizens that aren't even from this country. You know what? I have a huge heart, and so do so do many people I know. I think pretty much all conservatives do. But at the same time, I mean, they, they, you have to have sense. You have to have a, a freaking brain. Um, you know, I'm just looking at everything. You know, Homeland Security freed 5.5 thousand illegal aliens into the U.S. in a week. And in the last five months, there have been 196,000 released. Again, that's in five months. There's been 196,000. Uh, we have cops arresting uh, this past weekend in, in Virginia, uh, 80 illegal Mexicans because they were uh, playing with their cops, cop fighting. Uh, you know, they were, their cops were all over the place. <laughs> and uh, I tell you, um, you know, it just it, it gets it gets crazier and crazier. Um, and here's here's a really crazy, here's a really uh, terrifying thing. We figured out now partially where the funding was coming from for those big caravans. The report came out earlier today, and it said to England. England was involved. England was getting the money. England was donating. Uh, they were doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, and you know, he, here here is. Uh, illegal immigration being at record highs. I mean, it's we we are in, we were in the we're in the Clinton era. I mean, for how bad it is, uh, over a million illegals uh, expected in the in the U.S. just this year. 
I mean, we're this is this is scary. This is scary, scary stuff. And 124,000 anchor babies born in the U.S. so far this year. And let me remind you, the year started in January, and it's only June. 100, 124,000 anchor babies. Mind-blowing, everybody. Absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, let's go to Dr. Branch. Hello, Rory. You you hit it right on the head when when you said mega, mega, mega. What a president we have. What he has accomplished since he's been in office, but just what he's accomplished over this Mexico issue in the past week. Um, And and it it not only – it would would be great if we could say that he did it and it was along party lines and – the whole party joined him, and you know it was a great victory. No, it was Donald Trump. It was President Trump alone, uh, for most part. Uh, he had people like uh, Senator Martha McSally of Arizona going against him, uh, Congressman David Schweikart of Arizona going against him, uh, saying that you know this the the party line that you would hear from the Democrats. What he has done is, has been just truly amazing. And now if you've seen what happened in Iowa with all the Democratic presidential candidates, they don't even know how to respond to it. They're just making stuff up now. I mean when you hear you know, uh, your, your friend Bernie Sanders saying that uh, he spent his whole life fighting democracy, fighting against authoritarianism, whether it be in the Soviet Union, Venezuela, or any place. It's just, you know, it's like this revisionist uh, history. Kamala Harris walking around saying, well, President Trump hasn't delivered on any of his promises. He has just lied. And, you know, Cory Booker, and you played that from Tucker Carlson. You know, know, what are these people, the people of the left that believe any of this aren't even paying attention to reality? 132,000 people caught in the month of May. 132,000 in the month of May. This is outrageous. And to say that we're ticking off a good friend is just ridiculous. I mean, they are, you know, hey, I want great relationships with Mexico. I want great relationships with Canada. I think everybody does. But when you turn around and uh, you you have an invasion, now one of the key – and taking advantage, one of the key principles of this whole deal is uh, they get to st- they have to stay in Mexico while seeking asylum into the United States. Mexico will put them to work. I mean that is that is key. And and over the weekend, President Trump tweeted out that you know Mexico also agreed to start buying agricultural products from our exactly. farmers. And I, I'll tell you what what a heck of a deal a one man show. This is this is like. You know, uh, you know. I know that you you have fr- uh, we have panelists on here that love the Cowboys and they love the New England Patriots. Well, I'll throw in my Steelers. This is like Ben Roethlisberger hiking the ball to himself and going against the entire defense, but also having his entire offense jump on him, and he runs at 99 yards for a touchdown. This is amazing what what President Trump just did. And something else I want to bring up, because you bring up Feng Ju. He's a professor. He's a professor that he, uh, 
he said that uh, you know he he pointed out the facts on the cost of what illegal immigration is really doing to this country. People have asked uh, Michael Bussler and myself, uh, you know, Christian conservative college professors, how we survive on liberal campuses, and it's very simple. We have facts. We only report facts. Doctor Fang. Uh, Fang Zhu, he reports facts. And he said, listen, I'll debate anybody on my facts. You may not like what I have to say, but it's factual. You want to debate me? And so this, the, the university can't do anything against them. And that's how Dr. Bussler and myself survive as well. We report facts. So and I'll tell yeah. you what, uh, you, you, hit, you hit it absolutely right. Mega, mega, mega. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, let's go to Daryl. Daryl, go ahead. Daryl, go ahead. Yeah, I have to say, as a, as a Patriots fan, we generally do pretty well against the Steelers. But I, I do think I've, I actually have seen Ben Roethlisberger do something like that a couple more than a couple times. Actually, he's had some pretty heroic plays. But yeah, I mean, this is a, a great example of how alpha leadership can overcome tremendous obstacles to succeed. And, you know, it's it's a great analogy because his offensive line folded on him. You know, much of the Republican Party, you have the Ted Cruz's of the world basically undermining him as he's attempting to negotiate with tariffs while he's simultaneously getting heat from the progressives. I mean, this is the type of stuff where this is where it's very harmful, the, the, the politics of the day and how divisive it is because these are matters of social security. And, and whether you like it or not, the president of the United States is the head of the household. And, you know, that the family, you can have your discussions inside of the home, but you cannot be undermining the head of the household. And, you know, Trump put his neck out there. He did the right thing. And against all of this tremendous opposition, he managed to get the job done. And certainly the Democrats are not going to be pleased about this because as you've pointed out, as Tucker's pointed out and, and Dr. Branch and I'm sure Eric and, and Kevin will, the Democratic Party is actively engaged in treason. And their goal is to undermine and dismantle the fabric of the country. So they have a vested interest in immigration, unskilled immigration, illegal immigration any immigration other than individuals that are actually going to be net contributors to our society, because that is the one thing that would potentially pull them out of the welfare state. So you have a direct situation with the Democrats where if we're being honest about what they want, they want people that are as unskilled as possible. Not only do they not want a merit-based economy, but if they could have their pick, they would want the absolute worst. They want the people that are the least likely to make enough of a paycheck to where things like lowering taxes would be appealing to them. They want people that are going to be incentivizing and incentivize large government, people that are going to be reliant upon government. So nothing could be more treasonous as, as a political entity than you could have a party actively wanting seeking not only not merit-based, but seeking the absolute worst and the, the lowest common denominator specifically to bring them in to vote against the will, the overwhelming will of the people of, the, of, the own, of their own country. It was very disturbing, yeah. and it's also at the same time not at all surprising. Cory Booker's comments were hilarious, um, really betrays just how completely 
completely in over his head he is. Uh, there's just a, a, an overall silliness and a, a, yeah, I mean it, it's he's he's definitely AOC level, you know, in terms of his his general ignorance and lack of understanding of history, and just the the word salad of progressive ideas that continuously spew from his lips. So we know what we're up against. We're up against a party, and right now they're competing to show to their caucus who is the least American and the most dedicated to their cause of tearing us down. And someone is going to emerge out of that pile, and that person is going to be confronting you know, Donald Trump. And as confident as we are about let's be very clear about this. They represent a, a very serious threat. I, I'm not one of these people that is you know, popping the, the champagne bottles for 2020. Uh, we were very fortunate to win in 2016, and we are going to face a very large challenge. And as I think as, as ridiculous as these people are, I, I don't think that we can make the mistake of, of not recognizing the severity of the threat that they and their entire caucus represent. Yeah, I mean, 2020, let's face it, Darrell. I mean, it's going to be the most important election of our lifetime. It's really going to pretty much predict and dictate the future. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, and it, it seems cliche because every cycle it's this is the most important election. But it's actually true. The elections are becoming increasingly more important because the situation is becoming increasingly more volatile. And the consequences mm-hmm. are becoming increasingly more severe, and it's becoming increasingly more obvious that we are engaged in a very peaceful uh, yeah. form of civil war. I mean that is what our elections are. This is a, a, a serious war between two completely different ways of life, and the consequences become increasingly, as I said, increasingly more severe with each passing uh, two and four years, respectively. Very true, very true. Now let's go to Kevin. And we will get to our guest anymore. here shortly. We will get to Bob Dotson, our guest here shortly. Uh, Kevin, go ahead, though. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't agree uh, more with uh, Daryl. It's absolutely uh, crucial what uh, Trump has been doing to show his strong hand. I, I don't have any grievances whatsoever with Trump because this is exactly what he stood for in his platform, just as we hear in the introduction every single time uh, that we have this radio show. Uh, protection will lead to great prosperity, and that's exactly what having protectionist measures do. Um, I just wish he did it a little earlier because there has been a, a large amount of immigrants coming through our border. And um, just even though that we do have a lot of reassurances from Mexico that uh, they will contain these immigrants in, in their country in the meantime while they're going through these uh, asylum procedures, what's worrying as well is that there's still people crossing the border. In fact, just uh, two days ago, we had Breitbart and other uh, news sources uh, talk about how there's over, uh, 350 Congolese immigrants that had gotten bussed over across our border. To San Antonio. Right, and uh, incredibly worrying, too, because these are people that are absolutely dirt poor. They speak no English. You know, They need French volunteers in order to accommodate them, and they need resources in order to survive, and so that's coming from uh, all these, you know, our American treasury and through other outside groups. And it's absolutely uh, worrying, too, because, I mean, these aren't just, like, Mexican immigrants. I mean, it's it's much more severe than that. These are people that have virtually no, um, I would say, stable society back home. I mean, these people come from an Ebola-ridden country. Um, I mean, there are major diseases that are being shipped into our country, and there are uh, very malevolent forces that are 
trying to do so in order to weaken the American people. So uh, I wish that uh, a little more would be done in, on that front, but it's absolutely the case that this, this strong hand protectionism that uh, Trump had threatened that made uh, so far this uh, protectionism, this uh, making Mexico actually work to help defend our borders as well, that's uh, making a huge difference. For sure. For sure. Uh, let, let's go to Eric. Eric, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, a lot of good feedback. Uh, I, I think like with the, the Congo, you know, and, and people coming over from Africa, the question has to be how. You know, how, 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 who paid for them and why and who's behind it? And the guy from ISIS said, yeah, we've had discussions on we should try to bring some Anglo, you know, some white-looking Europeans over that represent ISIS through the border and and, and uh, President Trump is, is this anomaly. He, he's basically a one man against everybody. Um, he, he's got Stephen Michael Miller Jordan and some really politics. good – yeah, he's got really good people around him. That's how he's been able to be successful. He's surrounded with a really good team that's constantly looking into specific issues, and that's how he, get, he gets to get all these things done right. But, uh, no, I mean, wh- every time we, you know, I do a show or we come on here and we do it collectively – we are in a civil war. We, we, the left has very low intellectual levels, I think. I don't think Cory Booker and AOC and Pelosi and Schumer are going to win any IQ tests anytime soon. Um, they're, they're not the sharpest tacks in a box, but they, they do have constituents that aren't looking for, for real solutions or answers. They just want someone to say, um, we're going to let women abort babies and we're going to um, worry about you know, saving trees. So and if we're going to have to be the adults in, in American patriots in the country. 2020, I think, is more important because President Trump has, with the Department of Justice now under A.G. Barr and Horowitz's reports tied up, but it's coming, and then you've got uh, Durham's report coming. We know the deep state, if we can stay the course, are going to feel some pretty significant blows. But we ha- we also have to realize that that the old white guys or whoever is going to be the, the final spokesperson from the left, they don't have to have a policy. They don't need to stand for anything but but save the planet and get rid of the evil one, Donald Trump, and they will be the Democratic nominee. So the, my, 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 my concern every cycle is a lot of the Republican voters are older. And every time we go through a four-year cycle, we're losing some of the voters just due to age. So we've really got to button up 20, get people out, get them out, get them out passionately, get the House flipped, get a few more people in the Senate, and do some hyper-radical things in 20 and 21 that will cause the left to go beyond unhinged. I mean, you could see violence in the streets. You could see them burning. You can see, like, the Antifa fascist freakouts like Europe, because that's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with fascists. The people have a permission to hit you if you have a MAGA hat on. They can dox you. They can intimidate you. They can get you fired. So we have to collectively not want to be liked, go to the polls, and let President Trump continue and let the Department of Justice clean house. And don't expect to get any intellectual debate from the left don't expect them to like you or us, and don't expect them to agree with it. Because, like, like you said, the New York Times, well, President Trump really didn't 
uh, get Mexico to do this. He, it was already predetermined months ago, and he's just playing a game. Well, regardless, he still negotiated it, but they can't give him credit because they're yeah. trying to do an impeachment. So there, there is no there is no support from the left, regardless of what Donald Trump does. He could cure cancer. He could uh, bring you know bridge the divide for North Korea and everybody else. It won't matter. I mean, they're the kind of people that said, Barack Obama, you're elected and you want peace, Nobel Peace Prize. But he didn't do anything yet. Yeah, but he's Barack Obama. And so he's black and American, and we want him to have a Nobel Peace Prize. So that, that's what you're dealing with, incompetence, low-educated, hyper-left, fascist, violent, and not in, not in a mental position or, or an emotional position because of the hype from Hollywood, music, and in the news to be able to articulate a position. And so it's us against people who can't articulate a position. That's why it has to be our position is so crystal clear and easy to understand and easy to follow and not try to get into a mono against them because they can't articulate theirs. And all they're going to do is muddy up the water. Yeah, no, I hear you. Very well said. Uh, we're going to go to IQ and then we're going to take a quick commercial. Then we're going to, Introduce Bob Dotson. Uh, but IQ, go ahead, and then I'm going to go to commercial break. Hello? Yeah, IQ, go ahead. Gentlemen, we can discuss this subject from here to eternity. But the fact is that no nation on earth outside the I can't, I can't, Western... We, can you, uh, IQ, can you turn your volume up just a little bit? Okay. Can you hear me now? We can discuss this subject forever, but the fact is that no nation on earth outside the corrupt Western leaders has laws protecting the rights of illegals way above the rights of the indigenous citizens. I spent a few weeks ago, two weeks, investigating the immense and very expensive militarized secure borders of Israel with Egypt. Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, without which the state of Israel would have ceased to exist by illegal five years ago, who would have invaded her without a bullet being shot in the air. Before putting up these borders, Israel was invaded by over 70,000 Africans within a few months, who cannot and will not integrate among them. No decent patriotic American of any race religion, or politics, or political background, in fact, should ever, be, should ever support any politician or party that advocates open borders and or sanctuary cities. Such entities are treasonous and endangering the security and welfare of American people. Any American leader who advocates open borders should be immediately removed from office or put on trial for subversion. The most shocking and least comprehensive fact from my point of view is not only that your leftist fascist Democrats and rhinos are supporting open borders above and beyond the welfare and the security of Americans, but the complete silence of most Americans about these treasonous actions. How can anyone explain their silence when they should be enraged white hot to remove traitors among the politicians? Their silence makes them complicit in enabling these traitors and endangering the future of all your future generations. 
Back to you, sir. Very well said, IQ. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Bob Dotson, everybody. Very excited. Stay tuned. Roy Sider Show. TGI Friday's famous sizzling entrees that you know and love, like chicken, shrimp, and cheese, just got even hotter. With new delicious tastes like whiskey, flat iron steak, and the tastiest sizzling street noodles. Hurry in. Now starting at only $10. We bring the sizzle like no other. New sizzling entrees starting at $10. TGI Friday's, the home of endless apps. Endless apps every night, 9 p.m. to close. She's still the one for you. And Cialis for daily use helps you be ready anytime the moment is right. Cialis is also the only daily ED tablet approved to treat symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision or any allergic reactions like rash, hives, swelling of the lips, tongue, or throat, or difficulty breathing or swallowing, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use and a free 30-tablet trial. Packaging. I'm Ray, and I quit smoking with Chantix. I tried cold turkey. I tried the patch. They didn't work for me. I didn't think anything was going to work for me until I tried Chantix. Chantix, along with support, helps you quit smoking. Chantix reduced my urge to smoke. I needed that to quit. When you try to quit smoking, with or without Chantix, you may have nicotine withdrawal symptoms. Some people had changes in behavior or thinking, aggression, hostility, agitation, depressed mood, or suicidal thoughts or actions with Chantix. Serious side effects may include seizures, new or worse harder blood vessel problems, sleepwalking, or allergic and skin reactions, which can be life-threatening. Stop Chantix and get help right away if you have any of these. Tell your health care provider if you've had depression or other mental health problems. Decrease alcohol use while taking Chantix. Use caution when driving or operating machinery. The most common side effect is nausea. I can't tell you how good it feels to have smoke behind me. Talk to your doctor about Chantix. And we are back. The Rory Sauter Show, coast to coast, worldwide. Listen to in 23 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. And everybody, if you miss any past clips, past episodes, or need 24-7 breaking news coverage, please visit our media site, thenextnexgenusa.com. And remember, uh, starting either later in the show today or tomorrow, I will be announcing details about the many notable names that will be having their own shows on, our, on my new network. I can't wait. Uh, I do want to welcome a very, very popular guy, uh, Emmy Award winner, business mogul, TV show host, and best-selling author, Bob Dotson. Bob, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, and good evening. Bob, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I've been following you for many years. I'm sure many people on the line are fans of yours as well, a lot of my panel. Um, you know, like I do with everybody when they first come on my show, I always like to ask, you know, ask the guests how it all started, you know, the different chapters in life, the different, uh, you know, all the things you've experienced, how you got to where you are, I just kind of a bio. I, lo- I love that sort of stuff. 
<laughs> well, I'll tell you how it started for me. I was eight years old, and I would spend my summers in a little town with a lyrical name called Hiawatha, Kansas. It's where my grandfather lived, and he used to take me out after dinner, and we would swing on the porch, and he would say, did I ever tell you about my honeymoon? Now, I'm eight <laughs> years old, right? But even at eight, I was kind of interested. And he said, yeah. He said, I, I, I went to Salt Lake City. And even at eight, I was wondering why. <laughs> he says, I had a free ticket on the railroad. I had done some work for him, and I had a free ticket, so we went out there. But he said, I'm in the dining car having dinner, and the conductor wobbled up to me, and he said, are you Paul Bailey? And my grandfather said, yeah. He said, did you have ten brothers and sisters in a little town in Ohio? And he said, yeah, I was the last of the ten brothers and sisters. And he said, the conductor said, I'm your oldest brother. He had been missing from the family for 20 years. <laughs> so I have a postcard wow. that, that my grandfather pulled out of his shirt and gave to me. It was my grandmother and grandfather floating on their backs on the Great Salt Lake, right? And it was, this is yeah. 1921. So, you know, they've got the old spaghetti string swim, swimsuits and all that. And there's a big red circle around the brother who's probably taken a couple of days off the railroad. And the, the postcard is addressed to the mother back in Ohio. And it must have been the first tweet of the 20th century because all it said was, Ma, we found Vance. More later. <laughs> well, you know, when wow. you grow up in a family like that, people who tell you real stories – as opposed to, well, I joined the Army, and then we moved to Maple Drive, and then I worked at the hardware store. You know, by this time, the kids are all falling asleep. But if you've got a grandfather who says, let me tell you about my honeymoon, and then suddenly he opens the door into your entire family's history, that inspired me to become a storyteller, and I've tried to do that all my life. I love it. I love it. But So tell me everything. I mean, you have had so much success. You've won an Emmy. You've been, you've had uh, segments on the Today Show. You're actually a regular on the Today Show. Um, I mean, yep. you, you've had best-selling books. It goes on and on. Well, I just started out. I thought, as a young reporter, that the most underreported segment of our society was us. You know, celebrities get reported. Politicians, I've been listening to your show. They certainly get their minute or days or years, you know, in the sun. But there's always somebody around the corner or in your backyard who has made a significant uh, contribution to our world, but they're too busy doing that so they don't run for president and they don't get on the Today Show and they don't write a book. So I just decided early on that that's what I would do. I, my first job was down in Oklahoma City, and I got a call from a fire uh, chief up in, uh, in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where Oklahoma State University is. And they were tearing down this old fire station, and he said, uh, I, we found a whole big pile of old film up there, and we're not sure what it was. So I went up and looked, and I said, okay, first, it's uh, nitrate-based film, so it's highly explosive, because back in the old days, that's what it was. And I said, somebody probably stored it here, because they figured if it blew up, you guys would have the hoses <laughs> and was able to put out the fire. But what it turned out to be was a guy named Benny Kent, who was shooting film for about 60 years, starting three years before Oklahoma even became a state. And he sold it to Pathé Newsreel in New York, but they only wanted stuff, you know, which, which was traditional, like women walking around in swimming suits and cowboys and things like that. But this man 
was such a storyteller, he shot stories that he knew he couldn't sell. And then he just hung on to them because he thought somebody ought to, you know, ought to be doing this. And then you had Charles Corral over at CBS, you know, who was on the road for all those years, who gave me kind of a mantra for life. When I was a young reporter, he said, you know, Bob, all the money in the world is sitting on a stool in front of a TV camera in New York City, but all the fun is out there. And so every time I had a chance in my entire career to choose between some velvet glove that would put me in a corner office or, you know, cover, cover some big beat, I always worked my way back around to telling the story of seemingly ordinary people who had done something extraordinary. And that started off in local news, and then it went to the to NBC. And, you know, of course, if you have a long career, they hired me when I had red hair and freckles, and they let me stay until my 40th uh, anniversary to the day uh, on the Today Show. So, and most of the time, of course, you do a lot, a lot of things in a long career, and, I, and I'm no exception, but every time I had an opportunity, I would opt to go back out into the field and look for somebody uh, who had a, a great story to tell. And I'll tell you one, one real quick story. For instance, I bumped into a guy. These are not, you know, this is, I, I didn't do just good news uh, or, you know, or feature stories. I did investigative reporting on seemingly ordinary people to find out why and how it got done. So, for instance, our, one of our most recent national parks is the Lewis and Clark National Park out in Oregon, where they ended up you know, and saw the Pacific Ocean. And the guy who tried to get that done spent about, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years. He was a, a nature photographer. And he kept thinking that uh, you know, people were, the historians were overlooking some of the facts that uh, were kind of interesting. So eventually he, he even went and testified for Congress. And you know, so now they're going to cut the ribbon and open this new park. And all of his friends are sending me texts and emails saying he hasn't even been invited by the president to come out and be a part of the, of the uh, unveiling. So I call this guy, and he says, oh, that's by design. And I said, what do you mean by design? He says, well, nothing gets done in this world without power or money. And he says, I'm just an ordinary person. I have neither power nor money. So I decided I would approach this in such a way that I would attract power and money to get this park done the way it should be. And he says, right. to do that, I figured out I would just be exactly like I, I, I was teaching my young daughter how to ride a bicycle. Now, if I'm down in the church parking lot and I put you know, the uh, training wheels on the bicycle, power and money to hold her up, I wouldn't run alongside the bike and yell to all the neighbors, hey, look what dad did. He taught her how to ride the bike because she would never ride another bike. She would be so embarrassed that dad's doing that. He said, so once I get power and money attracted, I just stood in the shadows and applauded. Now, you know, there's a story on the surface, what happened with the Lewis and Clark Park. But to me, the blueprint that this ordinary person offers you the next time you go to the Qantas Club or the next time you try to get an awning built down at your church, you know, he said there's no limit to what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. And that's how he got the National Park done. And he said, so let the president stand up there. And, and, you know, let the person from, you know, Nike stand up there because they gave money. Because power and money, the ego of that is that they did all the work, right? I mean, they, you know, they want to be in the next newspaper or on television or whatever because that's how they get reelected or that's how they sell more Nikes or whatever. He says, so I just use that as a blueprint saying as an ordinary person, once I get them interested, I'll just step to the sidelines 
and let mm-hmm. that little bicycle keep rolling. And I thought, that's a great insight. And it didn't come from somebody that, you know, who wrote a 400-page book. It just came from this person who was looking at a problem and solved it and, and also gave us uh, by, by, you know, a little side uh, offer of this is how it was done. I think that's amazing. That's stuff that you that we, we we can really learn from. And so that's why I say the most underreported segment of our society are just plain people. And you know, I mean, you you specialize you specialize in journalism, and you've been in the business for so many years, and you see what's going on in today's society. And um, obviously, I won't. I'm not going to get too political with this question, but a lot of the fake news going around. What, what What is your opinion on – I've said this many times on my show, and, I, and I'll say it again. You know, journalism in a lot of ways in today's society, especially with politics, it's opinions. I mean, it's not even reporting the facts anymore, and it's it's like writing a story. I mean, it's a fictional book, you know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean, and I think part of the situation we face is twofold. One is that the uh, the, the marketing of – journalism uh, has changed and is undergoing a change to the point where they maybe have a third the number of people that they used to have, you know, in order to double check facts and do that sort of stuff. At the same time, you have a 24 uh, seven job. I mean, it used to be, I would work for the today show and I'd work hard and I might do mm-hmm. something for nightly news and I might, you know, do it. Even when the internet came along, I might, you know, write something for that, but then I'd go to bed. And now, yeah. and it, and it would be another rank to come on and, and, and do it. And, and on, on top of that, you would have people in their 50s and 60s who would check everything that came through. And it would, you know, it was it was shows. It wasn't just a constant wave of information. And so, right. you know, look what happens when you subtract the number of people that you really need to do the job. And at the same time, you have the rise of social media. So everybody who, uh, you know, who has a cell phone or an iPad uh, has an equal voice to get started. So then you don't know, you know, did, did somebody actually research this and find out, you know, and double check their facts? Or is this somebody who is in a political party or is this somebody in the basement or is this somebody down the street? You know, you don't know because so all of that, at least in, in most consumers' minds, are lumped into, well, that's the problem with journalism. Well, it's not necessarily journalism. You, you know, you're talking about this huge social media machine that turns out stuff all the time and then look look how quick our news uh, especially political news how quickly uh, the subject changes constantly so it used to be if somebody said oh my gosh this uh, bridge is about ready to fall in you know you'd have another week or so to go check to see is it really falling in and uh, you know how can I fix it but instead in 10 minutes there's another problem and then another problem and another problem so what you find is especially in political news is that people just react to the tweets they get the usual suspects to react to it, and then they move on to the next tweet. You see, but it, it's and it's same thing like well, like for instance today, you know they had the uh, helicopter that crashed into the top of a building in New York City, and 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 I was watching uh, NBC Nightly News, and the, the report that they had on that was almost about ninety five percent people's cell phone video, you know, so you don't even have professional photojournalists out there. I mean, they would, they do, but the problem is by the time, you know, everything is so fast and has to be turned around so immediately that nobody puts it into perspective. And I think what we're really talking about here is context. You know, I had a boss that says, if somebody says it's raining, 
and the other guy says it's not, your job is not to report the two sides. Your job is to look out the window and see if it's raining. <laughs> and so we used to do that. I mean, we, and we try to. I mean, there's still a lot of people who, who try very hard. And, uh, and, and in some cases, you know, they're, they're the glittering light on the hill. But you have this situation where almost everybody is a citizen journalist uh, right. in, in name only. And, it, and, and so you, you, know, that, you get what you get. You never, you never know where it's coming from. And whether it's, uh, you know, it's been vetted or, or what, or whether it's all it. it well, I, I'll give you one other quick analogy. When I was coming along, you, if you were a reporter, you didn't show up on Sunday shows talking about, you know, whatever the political problem of the, of the week was. The reporters went out and reported. The pundits went on the shows. You see what I mean? And now a lot of people, in order to be able to make their name in the business or – get enough money to pay their rent they work as reporters during the week and then they're on the shows taking a side well that you know who's going to believe them you know if you're if you're uh, pontificating on sunday that and in this case of course it's every day of the week but that 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 uh, that firewall between you know the journalism fact gathering and uh and and opinion has been pretty much broken down yeah, and you know, I, I want I want to ask you, you know, when you were at the Today Show, um, obviously you were around people like Matt Lauer and, and all these big people. Um, what I wonder, and, and these different, as, as a journalist, at, you know, today it seems like a lot of stations tell their reporters and their journalists what to do. Um, for instance, you know, we see people like, and then this is just one of many examples, but like Jim Acosta. From CNN, I mean, he purposely goes and tries to get on, under Trump's skin, uh, or he, or you know, other people like Don Lemon fabricate a story and basically only talk about their own opinion. So, and because usually they're told by higher ups what to report and what not to. Did you ever have to experience any of that? Never, absolutely never. Usually, what happened is that uh, um, you know when. There was a golden age of journalism in the world, and it was about from 1922 till about the mid-1990s. And this is why there were only one or two or three uh, outlets for your news where you where yeah. you live. You know, I'm talking about television and or maybe one or two, if you're lucky, in newspapers. And that was it. And in order for those media companies uh, to sell products – to the society, they had to move to the middle. They had to do a, a, a job of, of just trying to make make it as as central as, as as possible, do as good a job as they can. Now, prior to that, I mean, you look at the stuff from the American Revolution up to about the 1920s, and and it, even in my lifetime, my dad only picked up a certain newspaper in New York in St. Louis because it reflected his worldview. And that and that was it. And the, and the newspaper pretty much only reflected that view. And it sometimes trip, it dribbled over into the news columns as well. And then after mid-90s, with the rise of cable news, well, guess what? It was a lot easier if you have one tribe over here that you can talk to and the other one has a tribe over here that they can talk to to sell your product. And, and that's where it was. And so, in other words, the economics of it have also put it in a vice in terms of how uh, how you approach the day-to-day gathering of information. 
Absolutely. And, and at the Today Show, what what was, you know, you spent many years there. What was the work environment like there? What was, how was it? I mean, how, how do you describe it? Well, one of the reasons why I love the Today Show, and of course I worked at all the different shows uh, over a 40-year career, career, but when you're doing, well, now three hours a day, but it, even back when I was there, it was mostly two hours, they updated it all the way to Guam, you know, so <laughs> they were live for about four, five, six hours a day. And they had 200 producers and associate producers around the world because they had wow. to fill all that time every day. So what happens when you're working in a situation like that, they cannot micromanage you. So, you know, that goes back to your original question. Anybody ever tell you how to do a story? No, because if, if they figured out if Bob Dotson can do a story that we can put on, on television without a whole lot of looking over his shoulder – that's one less problem we have to worry about in a day of, uh, you know, six hours of live television. And, and in those days, yeah. when I say live television, a lot of it was on, you know, like mine, where, you know, on tape or it had already been pre, pre-done. And, in fact, the joke was they, they had an old-fashioned uh, firebox in the uh, a control room, and it had one yeah. of my stories inside on a videotape, right? And it was <laughs> a kind of like with a glass front and a little hammer. And the cool. joke was, if, and it happened all the time. It really wasn't a joke. You expected to have this story at, at 8.13, and, of course, people didn't show up or some, you know, you lost the feed or whatever. And the joke was to go break the, and throw Dotson's story on because it's going to be good and people are going to like it. So from a creative standpoint or a journalistic standpoint, to be able to just go out and do your story and the only feedback you get is if you screw it up, or if you take one side and not the other, or all the things that we've been talking about. Well, in terms of, you know, uh, that was nirvana. I mean, I could go out. Again, I talked about Charles Kuralt. When, when I met, first met him, he said, just never let him know where you are. <laughs> well, that would never work today because, you know, GPS and cell phones and all that. But that was his point. Just go out and try to find a better story than the one you were assigned. And so I did. I mean, I went out and I... You know, I, I had kind of an idea what we might do, and I would go out and shoot whatever that story was because it's expensive. You can't just get on a plane and go wandering around. But I traveled right. four million actual miles in this country gathering stories. Wow. And so, And I don't mean airplane miles. I mean, that's real miles. So big cities, small towns, whatever. And I have a whole – probably a whole different, more optimistic view of America than most people we hear today. Uh, and I don't mean just journalists, but I mean when you look at the political parties and the yang and the yang and the back and the forth, because at the grassroots level, things still get done, and they get done all the time. And so my question was always, why? And I'll give you, for instance, my daughter lives in Brooklyn, and there is a McDonald's on the way to Coney Island, and it is owned by a first-generation Hasidic Jew, and his general manager is a first-generation Palestinian. Most of the people who come in in the morning to get their egg McMuffins are first-generation Ukrainians and first-generation Russians and Pakistanis and Indians. Now, back home, some of their brothers and sisters are at each other's throats. And in Brooklyn, they're on each other's soccer teams. What is it about America that takes people who, you know, come and look, have have a, as we all do, hope for a better life, and uh, somehow 
put the, put, they don't have to agree with each other, but they put that aside long enough at the grassroots level to get small things done. And small things and incrementally end up becoming the America that we all love and cherish because somebody's figured it out. It's in your backyard. It's your uncle. It's your aunt. It's the guy that runs the hardware store down the street. But they have solved the problem. And, you know, we, we spend so much time uh, talking about our oft-repeated and well-deserved shortcomings but at some point, you kind of overlook, well, why is it still working? Why are we not being firebombed at the McDonald's every Tuesday at 2 o'clock? Well, because whatever, you know. But that's the thing I always looked at in my career. I didn't just go out to do fun stories. I went out to find investigative information about people who were being overlooked. Because you generally, you probably agree with me that most stuff comes from the bottom up. It doesn't come from the top down. I mean, the people at the top buy, buy a good idea and, you know, maybe help you along. But it usually bubbled up from somebody who just – well, I'll give you one quick – and I may be running on, but it's one quick information. I was down in Mississippi, and the guy said, you've got to go meet this man. He's really good with his hands, and he's repairing an old 1946 Ford. It turned out that that's my birthday. So I went to see him. Well, he had a much better story than that. He was much better with his hands. He was a truck driver whose company bellied up by the time he got to Detroit. So he got a job as a janitor at the University of Michigan Med Center in Detroit. And he's sitting there watching these young surgeons working, you know, practicing on mice and all that stuff. And, and he said, yeah, the tools are too big. So he goes home in his garage, and he was one of the first guys to develop the microsurgery tools. Yeah. And the dean of the University of Michigan Med Center told me later on, that he would send students to Jim because Jim could talk people talk. If they were, if a student was having trouble with a concept, a medical concept, says go talk to Jim because the body is just like an old truck and he can explain it to you like an old truck, you know, valves and this and the other. And so right. if you graduated uh, this month from the University of Michigan Med Center as the outstanding surgical student, you get your name on a plaque with Jim Suttis' face and he was never a doctor and the dean says he was the best medical instructor we ever had okay wow when i asked him he's 88 i said what'd you get out of this a lot of your students went on to great fame and fortune and he said well i am 88 and eventually i'm going to be on a hospital operating room i'm going to call in all my ious and i know they were well taught right wow wow <laughs> and i said why don't you talk about what you did tell people about it and he said well what i did speaks for itself that's the difference. Seemingly people, they're too busy solving, you know, or, or giving us a blueprint to actually yeah. tell us about it. And and that's the reason why I always kept my nose to that particular path. I thought this is going to be interesting all my life, and as it turned out, it has been. And so when you when you were at the Today Show, obviously you knew you knew Matt Lauer pretty well. Oh yeah, absolutely. For thirty years. Were you shocked when the news, when the news came out about him about a year and a half ago, or did did you know some of? The, I mean, obviously you didn't know he he was doing that specifically, but obviously that stuff was going on, right, with other people. But were you shocked that Lauer was doing it? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't. Well, let me let me put it this way: there's a difference between a player and a predator. You know, a lot of people in our absolutely. Business, uh, 
you know, are, are people that you wouldn't necessarily invite over to brunch, you know, if, if, you, if everyone knew what they were doing. But in Matt's case, what really got him, because I, 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 I saw nothing of that because I'm a, I'm a guy. And, and Matt is, is really a wonder that, that aside, he's a wonderful guy. I mean, he's, uh, and he seems has like, as many women friends. He seems like a down there yes, guy. He I've always many, liked him. I and he was always a consummate professional. Yeah. But this is, this is what got him uh, fired so quickly. He was having an affair with an intern in the Sochi Olympics. Now in any business in America, maybe in the world, but certainly, or the Western world, but certainly in America, if someone who has ultimate power, and you remember Matt was making over 20 million bucks and, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he was the, he was the guy, you know, nobody ever gets paid any more than, than a business tells you you need. They usually, they don't do that at all. But the thing was, you know, he was a, he was a major personality, but Mm -hmm. In any business, if you take somebody's daughter who went to college and have a six-month affair, well, the president of NBC News wandered over that afternoon or that evening over at Matt's house and said, that's it. And Matt said, okay, and out he went. So that was the real reason that he went so quickly because, you know, it just shocked everybody. We woke up one day, and Matt wasn't there. What was going on, you know? Now, were we shocked that he, that he, he had dated other women? No. But the fact that he was hanging out with an intern or, or some of the other things that came out later, I mean, that blew my mind. And I, and I, but, but there you are. And, we're, you know, we're in a different position now. And as the father of a daughter, I can understand that. I mean, I think it's great if they raise their hand and say, let's, let's think about this or question it, which would have never happened 50 years ago, you know. I mean, mostly when you look back uh, at most of the news coverage, um, in the early part of the 20th century, the people who were getting the most coverage were 54-year-old men, <laughs> you know, period. And so it was over the last hundred years or so, it's been kind of like, well, maybe there are some other people in the country. And now we've done some stories on that, and it makes it so much more interesting because we really are an interesting, diverse country. But, uh, you know, for, for as a father of, of a daughter, if she raised her hand, I want her to be heard. Now, she may be wrong, she may be right, but I want her to be heard, and that right. didn't happen 100 years ago. I mean, certainly anybody in power could stay in power, and that was it. And, and just, you know, describe, describing, uh, you know, because I know, I know in these places, like especially, you know, I, I just, I have, I have certain suspicions and certain strong guesses of some of these people that work for these liberal stations, I, I think a lot of them are probably closet conservatives, but they just they their whole role uh, is to is to follow the liberal um, protocol. I mean, it's, do you think that's pretty accurate? I mean, do you think there are a lot of people in this industry that work for liberal stations that they're taught when they on their show they talk liberal, but in real life they're closet conservatives? Well. I'll give you, for instance, you know, Mark Twain and some of his uh, buddies when they were young uh, were out in the in the gold fields of western, you know, uh, California, and uh, they found out that after they've you know done a couple of pages about that you found two gold nuggets and I found one, nobody was right. buying their newspapers, so they each they 
each took that kind of Saturday Night Live, you know, Jane, you ignorant slut uh, approach to the other paper, right? And it always amazed these folks because as soon as they got enough money, and this, this is Mark Twain in his 20s, right? Maybe early 30s. Yeah. And, yeah. and all of those folks who were ranting and railing against each other would end up going to San Francisco and getting a suite at the hotel and partying yeah. together. And then going back. So that's part of what you see. I mean, you know, you you look at the Rush Limbaugh's of the world and all that. It, the, it, you know, they believe a certain thing, but they don't really, you know, you have to also factor in that they're great actors, period. And and it's one thing if, you got a, if you're a radio host or a pundit or whatever. It's another thing right. if you're an anchor person or a journalist, um, you know, your job is to, to try to find the essence of the story. Uh, and mm-hmm. and then check all the facts. It's not to, it's not to do the other thing. And and so we do have a little of that. So right. the answer to your question is, I I am sure that in all of these various um, outlets, you've got people politically that run the gamut. Now, but if you're if you're working for MSNBC, are you going to sound like a Fox News guy? No. And if you're in Fox, but you happen to like somebody that maybe is running in the Democratic field, are you going to raise your hand? No, because mm-hmm. it's survival. So I think you're right about that. I mean, but the thing that and some of your listeners um, probably will see that this rings true. You know, you hear what you want to hear. And so if you hear somebody who is very glib and is, you know, he's in your life and he's telling you all this stuff. The question you have to ask yourself is, do do they really believe it or is it part of the act? And, and and that becomes very important because I mean it's okay to take sides and to discuss and we that's what you know hell we've been doing that for a thousand years. But, yeah. but the thing is, if you think that this person is is doing it because he's fundamentally uh, in love with whatever that idea is, and then you find him twenty minutes later working someplace else and he's taking the other side, well, you know may, maybe you ought to uh, second guess it. I think the real problem with journalism is, for instance. It used to be newspapers would make enough money on their sports section and their cartoons, et cetera, and their obits that they could send Bob Dotson out to check the bridge for one thing. How long is that bridge into town going to set up and not fall into the creek? And, you know, it was expensive because Bob had to spend a whole day looking at asking people questions. But nowadays we have to wait till the bridge falls in, you see, because we don't have the people, we don't have the money. And, and so we just we go from one crisis to another to another to another, and I'm not so sure in terms of the body politic and and, and that to be constantly in a state of crisis emotionally yeah. for everybody that you, you that, right. that would be conducive to coming up with a solution. Right, right. And, and have you you know in all your in all your years, you've been in journalism many many years, pretty much your entire life. Have you ever? Because I mean, I've I've even you know witnessed uh, the media with past presidents, and you know, obviously yeah, there there was a lot of distaste and dislike for past presidents, but I've never seen hostility and um, just attacks uh, to this level or to this extent like like it's happened to President Trump. I mean, it's. It's it's like overboard. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, some of your uh, listeners might be old enough to remember Sam Donaldson at ABC, and yeah. uh, he was the Jim Acosta of the uh, of the Reagan administration, 
And, you know, just a minute, Mr. President, he was always doing that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I take your point, and I, and I, and you answer, the short answer is no. I've never seen anything like that where, where we spend most of our time, um, I don't mean journalism, but most of us in this country uh, trying to figure out, you know, politics used to be a horse race, and now it's NASCAR. It's not enough to defeat somebody or to try to change their worldview. You want to run them into the wall, you know. Right. <laughs> and I just don't think that that, in the long run, is going to get us down the road. I, I'll give you a, a, just a brief story. My grandfather was a rock rip, small town Republican legislator, state legislator from Kansas. Yes. He lived in that little town, yeah. Hiawatha. And one of his best friends was Harry Truman. Oh, wow. And so I thought, I said, how the hell did you and Harry Truman meet? And he said, well, before Mr. Truman got into national politics, he was kind of like a county commissioner in Kansas City. And I went yeah. down and I uh, had to appear before him with a case. You know, it wasn't a, wasn't a judicial case, but, you know, try to get him to do something. Yeah. And I, started, I laughed and I said, well, you must have uh, won or I, obviously you never would have talked to him. And he said, no, actually I lost. But while I was there, I found out that Harry Truman, when he came back from uh, World War One, he went into business with a friend of his and opened up a hat shop in downtown Kansas City, and the hat shop went bankrupt. And and Harry moved in with his mother-in-law so he would save money, and he took 16 years and paid back all of his creditors. And my grandfather said, I figured a guy who do that, I could find some common ground with him. And so when my brother was 10 and I was 8, we were coming from St. Louis to spend the summer with my grandparents in this northeastern Kansas. My grandfather drives past Independence, Missouri, past Mr. Mr. Truman's mother-in-law's house, as he reminded us later in later years. He says, except during his years in the White House, all of his adult life, he lived with his mother-in-law or in his mother-in-law's house in order to pay back his creditors. Now, nobody does that. He did it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm eight. My brother's 10. My grandfather drives along. He sees Mr. Truman out mowing his own lawn. Now, Mr. Truman was probably in his early 80s. <laughs> and so he stops. And Mr. Truman invited us up for lemonade, which his wife brought out, not a maid. We sat there on the, uh, the porch, and they're talking back and forth for a while. My brother and I are just flabbergasted to be sitting next to a president. And finally, my, my grandfather pops up and he says, well, boys, let's get out of here before this Democrat stuff sticks to my tires. And my brother and I look at each other and we go, can he say that about a president? And, of course, Harry pops up and goes, oh, Paul, you old son of a bitch, you know, and claps him on the back <laughs> and off they go. And I'm thinking, you know, all my adult life being a journalist, I'm saying, where did we lose that? Where did we lose that? Why does the other side have to be the antichrist? You know, <laughs> isn't there some, you know, some place where we can meet and try to move forward together as opposed to constantly reiterating the fact that we're so different and we're so vile and on both sides. And, and, it, and, and so I thought, what a hell of a blueprint. But and then I, years later when they were put, I did a Today Show piece on when they, they gave the uh, – the, the house to the National Park Service and made a national park out of it. And his daughter, who went on to become a, a pretty big author in her, her day, was there. And right. she said, you know, my dad used to – my mom didn't want to live in the White House because 
uh, she said it was boring. So she stayed most of the time back home in Independence with her mother. And he said, when when Dad called, he called home collect. <laughs> and when wow. Mr. Truman left the presidency, he only had his military pension. And, it, it, you know, every big company in the world lined up to try to get him on the board. And he said over and over again, my grandfather told me this, that you don't want me, you want the president, and I'm no longer the president. So I don't want to be on your board. And both houses of Congress and both political parties finally decided, well, this is, this is terrible. And they, they decided to, to give presidents a pension. And it started with Harry Truman because he, he, had, he had always turned back public money. And I'm thinking, wow. It, and, and Margaret Truman, his daughter, said, <laughs> you know, mom <laughs> wanted to have a new car when they were president. Yeah. And he said, we can't afford it. Now, this is a guy that's lived with his mother-in-law forever. And, he, and so when, after he shook hands with uh, President Eisenhower, they went down, as Mr. Truman said, as soon as I get out of this great white jail, we'll go to the Buick dealership and buy one. And they did. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and when Harry Truman met uh, Stalin at Yalta, yeah. uh, the reporters who were there said it was the only time they saw Stalin truly laugh because Harry said, I hear you're a tough guy. And Stalin just went, uh-huh. And he says, you're wow. not so tough. I live with my mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Some of the fun. That is hilarious. Isn't that great? Yes. But I, I yes. Just, you know, I, all, my, all my life I've taken that as kind of my North Star. If people who were so different in terms of how they viewed the world could find something uh, yeah. in their friendship that, you right. know, of course, my grandfather wasn't a national legislator, but he, they both admired something in each other so that they could at least sit down and have a beer and maybe right. solve something. So, you know, there you go. What, and, and describe, describe the feeling when you won an Emmy. I mean, that, that's like – you know, you, you're 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 right up there with all these big time names. I mean, that's that is a, a very <laughs> impressive uh, achievement. Congratulations on that. Well, i i i got um, I got the Emmy. It was one of the first Emmys ever given to a local reporter, and uh, I was in Oklahoma City, and they said uh, the, the the station that I was working for. I was about uh, to have their license contested because they weren't serving a uh, diverse community, which was not unusual in the 1970s. So instead of hiring an African-American to do a story about uh, African-Americans, they hired a redheaded, freckle-faced kid from St. Louis who fortunately was curious. So I ended up doing a 90-minute history of African-Americans in the West. And eventually we ended up, you know, hiring a few that weren't just pushing brooms and things. And so, you know, some of the other uh, producers that were working with me. So that's how I got my ticket into NBC because, you know, it was very rare for uh, a a local producer uh, and reporter to to win on a national level. And and I I remember – you remember there was a – some of your older listeners might remember there was a show called Wild Kingdom um, that – uh, it was uh, out of uh, the Lincoln Park Zoo, and I was sitting next to the guy who was about ready to win a big uh, Emmy 
for his work on apartheid in uh, South Africa. Marlon Perkins was the uh, host of Wild Kingdom. It was, you know, it was, a zoo show. It was called Zoo Parade in Wild Kingdom. Yeah. And this yeah. guy was laughing. You know, he really put the all this Emmy stuff in perspective. And I've won eight Emmys, one eight and a lot nominated eleven times. So you you stick around long enough, and you do something unique, like I was trying yeah. to do. Uh, you, you get Thanks. noticed, and that was the only. I tried to do a good job, but it was more than that. It was because people were could relate. You know, it, you, it wasn't some politician or some celebrity. It was somebody like somebody that in their own family that I was telling a story about. So that's how it got picked up, and the books and everything else. But this guy who was sitting next to me, first time I'd ever gone to one of these things, and he said, right. "Now you know, I've done this, 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 and this." But I'm only going to remember it for one line I wrote, and it was not for some great documentary. It was because I was trying to make a living, and I was working for Zoo Parade with Marlon Perkins. And Mr. Perkins was really old in those days. And Jim Fowler was coming in to, to help him as another uh, person on the show. So they would they would send uh, an airplane and to take them all over, say, to Africa, and they'd shoot all the wide pictures. And then they would send Marlon home because he's old. And he said, yeah. so the cameraman would then back in St. Louis would take a rope, tie it to a fence, and then get down on his back and shoot up at Marlon and then, you know, struggle back and forth as if he's still holding on to an alligator, right? And so he says, my line, which became part of the culture, was, while I held the rope, Jim wrestled the alligator. <laughs> <laughs> And he says, so, you know, you could have this whole life of doing these great, wonderful things that you're kind of proud of, and they only remember yeah. you for one little catchphrase that, that caught on, you know. So I, I quickly realized that, yes, it's it's wonderful to be, um, you know, to be noticed. I had a book that became a New York Times bestseller a few years ago on the American story um, and that sort of thing. But to me, the lasting uh, thing that I take out of all that is that I people see me and they start talking about a story that they saw as if it were Tuesday and it was 20 years ago and it stuck with them and and that's what I you know I take the most uh, uh, to bed with me at night going like well that that turned out okay so it, it registered with somebody they thought about it it made a difference and so uh, let's keep doing it yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Uh, let, let's go to let's go to Dr. Branch. Dr. Branch, go ahead. Yes. First off, uh, what an honor it is to talk with you. Um, you know, the the American storyteller. Uh, you know, I, 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 I my hats off to Rory for having you on tonight. I could listen to you all night long. Uh, and it, something that I, I I'd like to bring up because you brought up some really great points. Uh, I teach leadership to the doctorate level, and when I do that, I talk to my students about building followership. Building followership is building uh, inspiring. To inspire, you, 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 you sell the why, not the how or the what. And when I do that, I bring up great storytellers like yourself, because when you tell a story, you know, just like you were talking about the the medical instruments, or you, you led the, the, your, your, your uh, topic off tonight with, you know, a speech that, you know, well, I was born here, I was this, and, you know, four senses in the person sleeping because they're selling the how or the what. Uh, they're not selling right. the why. 
And what I love about you and, and, and your stories throughout the years has been the why, because that was always the hook of, you know, why. And, 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 and you have always inspired me by that. And, I, you know, my hat's off to you. I want to thank you for bringing this to us um, all, all of my life. I'm the old guy on the panel that does remember Mutual of Omaha's Marlon Perkins. I'm the guy that remembers <laughs> yeah. him saying that, you know, he narrated, well, Jim went out and risked his life. You know, <laughs> it was <laughs> right, always fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was great. But you, you did mention something that is saddened to me, and, and that was the golden age of journalism, because it seems as if it's not there because, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, the time frame throughout the 90s, but the journalism or the journalism integrity doesn't seem to be there. We have people that are now famous for being famous, um, mm -hmm. you know, and the question is, is anybody even paying attention anymore? You know, we have so much of the rhetoric going on. It doesn't seem like people are paying attention. You mentioned Mark Twain. Uh, but now in Arizona, and I, I live in Arizona, and now they're banning the works of Mark Twain and Harper Lee, uh, saying that they're too racist. Uh, so you know, I, I'd like to get your position on, you know, first of all, where journalism is, but also, you know, there's there's a lot of stories, and you brought it up. You know, one of your stories was the history of African-American, and I like how you said it, a red-haired, freckle-faced kid gave it. Yeah. Is there anything that you would look at, you know, some of your stories that with the revisionist history that's going on today that would be deemed or, you know, maybe your producers would not air today? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Uh, my yardstick was always if, if you got – uh, not just the, the viewer or the listener or the reader hooked, but you also had your boss hooked in how you're developing a story. You probably got a lot more leeway to tell the stories than uh, you would have otherwise. And so that's what I, that's what I always tried to do. So I'm, I'm not sure uh, that, because I've had to go back over many of my stories with the, uh, with the idea of writing books and stuff like that. And I, and I had asked myself that very question, you know, this might've worked in 1985, but could I do it today? Mm -hmm. And, and mostly uh, the narrative um, tries to get the one thing that you're talking about that, that our journalism lacks today. And that is context, context. Mm -hmm. where, how did we get to this point? Like the why, why? Uh, like the four-year-old always says, why, why? Well, th th that's, and, and the only bright uh, light on the horizon of that in terms of how that might then come back into our our, our media salad is that, uh, just like you're listening tonight, a podcast, for instance, um, I, I survived the last six years of my 40 years with NBC because I embraced uh, the new media. And so, you know, I would go to the people who were trying to, decide whether or not Dotson's was too expensive. And I don't mean my salary. I'm just getting out there. They had to make a choice. Do you send Bob out to do or someone else 12 stories today, like what you're talking about with no context, or do you let Bob go out and spend, you know, two or three days in Alaska to pull something out? So what happened was I would do a story on the today show. And in those days we still had about 6 million viewers. 
Um, and then we would put it on the todayshow.com, which was brand new in those days, you know, on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I would do additional uh, stuff for it. I, you know, you, you had the, you had the piece that ran on the show, but I would do something else on, you know, written or pictures and stuff. Well, you know, six million people watched it on the Today Show, but over the next six months, some of my stories had between 25 and 40 million views, and they had to watch wow. a little 10-second commercial on the front of it. So it wasn't just people clicking through. And I, I think that, well, that, that's what kept me working for, you know, when you get old, they want to let you go because you're at the high end of the salary, and, you know, the bean counters look at it and go, well, why are we doing that? Because we're, it's a whole new media. But I'll I tell you a little thing. When I first started, here I came from this, you know, this big 90-minute show that's got me the job. I get to the Today Show, and the boss at the time says, well, listen, all our tape pieces are a minute 10. And I'm going, wait a minute, a minute 10? <laughs> yeah, it's a minute 10. So I realized I couldn't be Martin Luther. This was the Catholic Church. I couldn't tear it down. I was 25 years old, so what the hell, you know, as a young reporter. But everybody else, I noticed, called up every morning and complained to the, the people who were stacking the show that they needed another 15 seconds or maybe two minutes or five, and I got a second coming. So what I did was I decided I would do every story at 59 seconds for an entire year, but I would use documentary techniques. So instead of just having the president say something and, and then somebody else react to what the president said and then somebody else tell you something else, what I would do is I might have a woman – who's looking for her uh, child who went away in the flood. And I do the whole story. I do the big story, but through her, her, you know, her looking out at it, you know, so 59 seconds. And so every morning the boss knew he had 11 seconds back from me that he could then squander with somebody else. Meantime, I went around to all the old heads and I said, listen, can I borrow your camera? I know it's a union shop, but I just got to go out and shoot something. I got this idea. Okay, and then I would go back to an old person who was editing, and I'd say, I, can I borrow your editing machine for just a second? And then how can I get better? How can So we polished this whole thing for a year, a story. And I don't even remember what the story is now, but I put it in my back pocket, walked into the boss's office at the end of the year, and I said, listen, I've got this idea, and I gave him a, like a 15-second elevator pitch. He didn't realize I already had his shot. And I said, uh, but I think I need two minutes in order to do this. And I, I, I worked for a whole year to find something that could actually work for two minutes. And he looked at me and he says, I will give you five minutes. And I went, huh? Now I had to go back to, you know, I had a five minute <laughs> segment on the today show from 1977 until I retired in 2015. And, you know, the wow. formats changed. They went, and went, but they were stories. And yeah. as I tell, I, I teach a class in master storytelling at, at Syracuse university. Uh, via Skype because I don't want to sit up there in the snow. But <laughs> my wife and I have moved south. Smart man, but, smart man, uh, smart man. But right. So, but I tell them, you know, every other journalism school teaches the five, the, the W's. You know, who, what, when, where, and why. I try to tell that in every story. And I said, I, I approach my stories a little differently. I go, hey, you get their attention right off the bat. You know, somebody's read, got the knife in the air. Somebody blew up. Hey, get their attention. And then it's you. This story might be a train derailment in Topeka, but this is why you care about it in Austin, Texas. This is a story about you, because otherwise they don't care. You've got to find the universal context. Hey, you. And then C. C is the easiest part of the story. It's the middle part. It's usually what I write first. 
And what it is is you connect the seemingly unconnected. That's what the storytelling does. I mean, a storyteller uh, shows you and tells you things you might have missed even standing next to him. That's wow. the essence of storytelling. So in other words, you, if, some, if, if this cafe has been flooded, you don't walk in there and just take a wide shot of the cafe and say, you know, Charlie owned the cafe and, it, you know, he's owned it for 20 years. You find a, an apple on the third shelf, which is covered in mud, and you say the flood was as high as this apple. See, now it's a detail. Hey, you see, and then the last one is so. So why should you spend the next 13 seconds listening to me? And why should you come back? And I had a young reporter come in the other day, and I said, she said, we don't have to tell stories anymore because we just tweet. And I said, what was the last thing you tweeted? And she said, the suspect ran into the mall and bought a green sweater. I said, okay, same number of uh, characters. This is a country western songwriter. But he wrote, honey, the gutter ain't a step up from you. Now, which tweet would get you to come back for the rest of the story? Ran into the mall to buy a green sweater? Or, honey, the gutter ain't a step up from you? Just because it's short doesn't mean it can't be a story. I mean, country western songwriters and Japanese poets have been writing at that length forever. So, but one hooks you and the other doesn't. And that's the key to it all the time. So the long answer to your short question is the most important thing is that people crave context. And if you got like a podcast, which does really well, uh, and I think video, they'll probably still be doing that. That'll be the next thing they go into that at least the long form stuff. In the old days, we would have called it a documentary or something. But the longer form stuff will at least uh, give people the context that they need. And so maybe that, that's the solution. We, have, we do have to take a quick commercial. Uh, please, but if you can please stay with us, uh, Bob. Uh, we'll come right back. Some of my other panel wants to ask you a couple questions. Sure. Is that okay? Okay, it's perfect. We'll be, we'll be right back, everybody. Hello, everybody. This is Rory Sodder from the Rory Sodder Show. Are you an aspiring entrepreneur? Do you have an app idea? Do you want to save money? Well, I got great news for you. My company, GetYourAppBuilt.com, charges a fraction of the cost compared to anywhere else. And all of our work is the same amount of professionalism you'd see from any other company. Uh, please visit our website, GetYourAppBuilt.com, for your free consultation and contact us today. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Rory Sodder from the Rory Sodder Show. Please visit TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com for all your authentic, customized, and creative President Trump apparel and merchandise. You won't find products like this anywhere else. And best part of all, it's made here right in the USA. Use Mega45 at checkout for 30% off your first purchase. Again, visit TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com today for a wide variety of great selections. Thank you. Would you know what to do in the event of an active shooter, a terrorist attack, or an unforeseen altercation? Whether at home or in the workplace, Skyray Security can train you and your employees how to defuse a potential violent situation. Our goal at Skyray Security is to keep our clients safe. With our professional and experienced Israeli Defense Force trainers, we teach strategies for safety that may someday save lives. 
Sign up at SkyRaysSecurity.com for our workplace violence prevention and training classes or call 240-888-0682. Is video a part of your strategy for 2019? Hi, I'm Rob Hicks with Hicks Video, your remote video production specialist. Using equipment you already own, I help you deliver high-value videos to your audience. From interviews and demonstrations to online meetings and trainings, I work with you to shape your stories and subjects that demonstrate your subject matter expertise. If you're a product specialist, sales executive, or business owner, we make video production simple and affordable. We do this so that you can make videos on a regular basis, whether it's daily, weekly, or monthly, to communicate about the topics and discussions that are important to you, your audience, and your business. To make your videos, we use HD video conferencing that allows you and your guests to connect to our studio from your home or office using your laptop, phone, or tablet. Once you and your guests have connected to our studio, we do all the rest. We take care of the TV graphics, the intro videos, the outro videos, the music, the behind-the-scenes production. Everything that it takes to either live stream or locally record your video for post-production editing to social media, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you name it. If you're tired of seeing the empty balloon commercials that are being made by your competition's social media experts, give me a call. I work directly with you, the subject matter expert, to help shape your story and ideas in a professional and polished manner via video. If you're ready to take a deep dive on your expertise and showcase the essence of your business via video, give me a call or connect with me online. I'm Rob Hicks with Hicks Video, the remote video production specialist, the doer's resource for online video production. And we are back, the Rory Sauter Show, coast to coast, worldwide, listened to in 23 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms, and everybody, if you miss any past clips, past, past episodes, or need 24-7 breaking news coverage, please visit my media site, the next, N-E-X-G-E-N-U-S-A.com. And remember, uh, I actually will be starting to announce it tomorrow. It won't be today, but starting tomorrow, I will be announcing the many notable people that will be doing uh, their own shows on my new network, and I cannot wait. Uh, a lot to look forward to. Um, I want to, obviously, I'm going to get Bob. Um, More people definitely have questions for you. Let me go to Daryl. Daryl, go ahead. Well, first and foremost, Mr. Dotson, it is a a real, a real honor. And I say this, Rory has had many great guests on, but uh, it's a real honor to have someone of, of your your history and esteem on the program. Uh, just really, I had to pinch myself when uh, when he, when you know he mentioned your name. Um, I, as as he mentioned at the, the start of the show, I'm a presidential candidate for 2024, and I represent some views that you would probably feel would be rather extremist right wing. And, you know, I don't want to bring you too much into the fray on that. I just kind of want to respond to a few concepts that came up over your, over your comments and kind of share some of my thoughts and maybe give you an opportunity to respond in whichever way, uh, you know, seems interesting or, or meaningful to you. I think, you know, I, I want to start, you know, you, you had mentioned that the lovely anecdote about the multiculturalism in Brooklyn. And, you know, I certainly know that firsthand. My, my family grew up, they came over, half of them came over as first-generation immigrants and uh, grew up across from Cannonball Park in some uh, little apartments up there, and, and a couple of them still live out there. And, 
And there certainly is something uh, truly magical and charming about, you know, the American city and the, the type of multicultural exchange that, you know, that you've expressed and, and, and spoken to. Um, I, I think that part of the problem that we have is that that multiculturalism has been set up as though uh, that is actually the central purpose of the nation. And the entire structure politically has been organized around that. And I think that certainly there is a degree of diversity and multiculturalism that is quite charming. But I think that there are also a point where it actually, it actually becomes a little bit too much for a nation to sustain. And, and one of the questions that you, know, that you had asked was, why, why don't we have that anymore? You know, why don't we have these types of really uh, incredible exchanges? I mean, like that just in, incredible story about your family and, you know, President Truman. And why don't we have that anymore? You know, why don't we uh, go go have a barbecue with, with the Democrats? And, you know, and I, I would start by saying that uh, what do you think Harry Truman would think of the contemporary Democratic Party? Uh, what do you think he would think of the Republican Party? He would be, I think, substantially to the right of both of these. And I think that the answer to that question of why don't we have that cohesion anymore, I think that that, that is really the, 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 the dark side of this endless quest for multiculturalism. Men like your father and Harry Truman shared certain things. They shared some loose, uh, cultural and ethnic identity. They shared some loose ties uh, religiously and, you know, some common ethics and some common es- uh, expectations of what a civil society operated like. And that, in fact, this was a time where Republicans and Democrats, uh, you know, squabbled over things like marginal tax rates and city ordinances and these types of things. And and, and now it's rather different. Now it's, it's not about that anymore. It's, it's about a struggle between uh, a prior American identity and an effort to replace them. And I think that Harry Truman would not be welcome in today's Democratic Party. So, you know, when you talk about as a reporter, your job is not to say one person says it's raining and one person says it isn't. Uh, the question is, who is responsible for the breakdown of the country and this sort of nonviolent civil war that we have? And I think that it is very clearly the progressives that have routinely championed the systematic dismantling of everything that uh, once constituted our cultural identity. I think it is rather clear that uh, this is not a matter of, you know, let's put both children in time out. Uh, I think it's very clear that there has been one side that has worked very nefariously, and I think that uh, it has unfortunately given a bad name to uh, many things that we once could have innocently enjoyed, like multiculturalism in uh, you know downtown Brooklyn or 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 other cities across the country, and, and to now to much of the country, what they see is they see a a a strategy of replacement and a very cynical political strategy to uh, basically do anything and everything 
possible to supplant them. And I think that you're seeing a reaction from these people that are feeling backed into a corner. So those would kind of be my response. And then I, and I think that you come from such a beautiful age uh, of just of charm and civility and culture. And I think many of my generation actually really wish for a return for that. And uh, so while I think that maybe you may not be as sensitive to the political concerns of my generation, ironically, I think so many of the things that you had and speak to and provide testimony to are really the things that many of us wish that we had and and look around and and simply do not see. I hate hate to do this, but uh, I loved everything you said, Daryl. I I just – if we could – uh, Bob, if you could give That's like a, it. if you could give me a response in like a minute, because I do we are on a timer. I do we still got to get to Kevin and then uh, other people. But if you could respond within a, within one minute, uh, Bob, that would be great if possible. Sure. Well, I, I, I take all the points that you you make, and uh, you know I've, I've been uh, <clears throat> with uh, people of all generations for a long, long time, and and the only thing I would say is that we spend too much time worrying about uh, the other side being so totally out of touch and not listening to us. And all what we need to do as journalists and as citizens is to dig into what is working and figure out why and how we can extend that so that we can actually solve some problems rather than just keep yelling at each other. Very very well said. Very well said. Um, Let's go to Kevin Dukeiper. Kevin Dukeiper, go ahead. Wow, great to talk to you. Uh, I know we're running out of time, so I'll make it quick. Essentially, since you have such a extensive background, I was really curious to know what kind of content, what kind of themes that you believe that people crave the most, what they're most excited for. I know through my experience, uh, I mean, of course, there's all these different, um, I don't know, denominations and demographics through through age and so forth that really make people different. But was there any content that you saw that people like really lust and crave after? Well, I, I think that the short answer to that is tell me a story. If, if you have a good story, which includes context, how we got here, where we might go, what was the motivation, uh, and you've sold it in a way that you, you've grabbed people's attention, that's what they crave because what they're hearing is just a ping-pong match uh, in, in most of our communications these days, which is you know, because of all the things we've been talking about. But if somebody comes along and says, hey, this is how it got started, and this is the most intriguing part about it, and this is actually a quest for a little hope, I mean, is there a way out of any of this? And, and I don't mean the big picture. I'm talking about the small picture. Is there a hope? And I always tell young journalists coming along, you haven't finished your story until you've researched to see if there's any hope that you can at right. least highlight a little glimmer that there's a way out of it. And Kevin, Kevin, in case I don't get back to you, uh, Kevin, please tell everybody where they can find you. Absolutely. You can find me on Facebook through Nationalists United or nationalistsunited.com. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Perfect. <laughs> um, Kevin, do you have another response? Do you have something else to say? Uh, let me see. Get... Uh, let's go to Eric. Eric, go ahead. We got about we got about a minute, Eric. Go ahead. 
All right, so hey, good, uh, good evening, sir. Thank you so much for being on. And um, you remind me of I grew up in Iowa and I lived in Kansas. I grew up in uh, <laughs> went Alexa, Alexa, and um, and um, so I I can totally understand your Midwestern style of of trying to connect people and stuff. Do you do you think do you think our country with the amount of non-assimilating immigration, do you think we can get in a position where we can have common or, or or ways to look at situations and, and be able to commonly say why and be able to go there? Or do you think it, the diversity is so wide now with different backgrounds and approaches and cultures that maybe that that day of being able to have a common story, that documentary that we can all get a hold of, do you think that's still possible? Or is that is that maybe oh, just oh, going to so. be I've also been a down kind of a to the subculture? Of, uh, yeah. I, I've been kind of a student of uh, personal history, and I don't mean mind history, but, you know, below the political parts, you know, of, of what made the country the country. And I'll give you one little quick example. The most diverse state in the union, and you can win a bar bet, is not New York and it's not California. It is Oklahoma. And here's why. 28 all African-American towns at one time were in Indian territory. They had 37 different tribes who were as different as someone from Turkey is from somebody from Russia. But it, Hollywood would have them all. You think that they're all alike. They were all pushed into, into Indian territory. And then the immigrants and others who couldn't afford property or a business anywhere else in the United States lined up for seven free land runs between 1889 and 1904. And so if they couldn't afford it, they just waited for the gunshot to go off, and then they came into Oklahoma, and, and they added to the mix. So you have places who are, that are ghost towns now, like New Stuttgart, New Berlin, New Brazil, you know, and, uh, Asian countries, all of them. The thing is, today they all talk like this. They're all from Oklahoma today, but they came from all over the world and found some – it didn't mean that they all loved each other, and they probably screamed at each other as much as we are doing in this day and time. But they built Oklahoma, and they got it through the Dust Bowl, and they went out and got a decent football team, and the rest is history. Yeah. yeah. So I think there, uh, is, there, is, well, there is some I understand hope. that. That's, know, that's why not... – I, I think that's, that's the question, because I'm in California, so I, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of the Central Valley where you've got extreme diversity and really seconds. not a lot of assimilation. So I'm just curious how you're looking at it from a macro picture versus locally. We don't seem to have a lot of uh, connecting um, at this level. Well, I think I think we live in a day and age where people talk uh, over each other, and and okay. very few people actually listen. They just want to hear their voice, and so that that, that right. becomes a real challenge to, to try to figure out yeah. how do we find some common ground. Right. Okay. Great. Thank you. Very, very well said, Eric. Please tell everybody where they can find you. Eric, please tell everybody where they can find you. Go ahead. Oh, sure. The easiest way to get a hold of me is I'm on mo, uh, mojo50.com, uh, 11 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, 2 a.m. Eastern, mojo50.com, and my social media site, which we're going very quickly, is mega, M-A-G-A book.com. And look forward to seeing you over here. Appreciate it. Awesome, awesome, um, Bob. I, I really, I really want to thank you for coming on tonight. It's really has been a pleasure having you on. Uh, you're a fantastic guest. You got so much great insight on life. 
I, le- I learned so much. Uh, so uh, you, you've got you've got so many great stories. You really do. Uh, please tell everybody though where, where they can buy your books, where they can connect with you, all that good stuff. Well, it, it, my name is spelled uh, D O T S O N, and if you just uh, if you go on Amazon or a bookstore, you can order the American Story, a, a lifetime search for ordinary people looking doing extraordinary yeah. things, or any of the other three books I've written, or you can go on YouTube and see some of these uh, stories I was talking about, or the NBC and the Today Show has a page, and yeah. so they're all stories about us, and they live on and on, and and uh, I would I. I Thank you very much for inviting me on. And any time a reporter gets more than a minute ten to talk, he's thrilled. Yeah, I loved it. I loved having you on. I could, I could, I could talk to you all day. And uh, we'll definitely have you back soon, my friend. Okay. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate it. And good night, Thank everybody. You. Have a great night. Have a great night, sir. Bye. Uh, Dr. Branch, go ahead. Speak up a little bit, Dr. Branch. Winner at Bob Branch. That's B-O-B-B-R-A-N-C-H. Good night, Roy. Perfect. Have a, have, a, have a good night. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. Uh, let's go to Daryl. DarylKane2024.com. Thanks for having me. Have a nice evening, everyone. Take care. Absolutely. Um, I want to I thank everybody for tuning in tonight. Uh, it's been a fantastic show. Um, there's, I have so many different people on the line right now. Uh, let me go to, uh, let's go to, let me go to I, IQ. Uh, I'm going to get you back here tomorrow. I'll have some more stuff to talk about, but please, um, tell everybody where they can find you and connect with you. Just Google my name, El Rasuli, A-L-R-A-S-S-O-L-I. Have a good evening. Take care. Thank you. And I see I see a lot of other people on the line, and, and I know I didn't be, wasn't able to get to you tonight. We've I didn't expect to have uh, Bob Dot Bob Dotson on this long, even though it was a great interview. It was awesome having him here. Um, I want to thank all my guests, my audience, my sponsors, and uh, all my co-hosts. You guys are incredible. The show is amazing. It's unbelievable. We're listening to it 23 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. And uh, everybody, if you miss any past clips, past episodes, or new 24-7 breaking news coverage, visit our media site, the next, N-E-X-G-E-N-U-S-A.com. And starting tomorrow, I will be announcing the details of all of the big-name people that will be doing their own show on the network. I cannot wait. Uh, a lot of stuff I did not get to today. I will be getting to it tomorrow. Um, I hope you all have a blessed night. I'm Rory Sauter. Thank you for tuning in to the Rory Sauter Show. Mega, mega, mega. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. God bless. Cheers.